Let's open up in our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 1, continuing in our series. Ephesians chapter 1. Identity issues, God's glory in us through Christ's work for us. The title of this message is Our Inheritance and God's Inheritance. We're looking at verse 11 today, but we will read uh, starting at verse 3, as has been our habit the last few weeks. I'm reading in the New Living Translation, Ephesians chapter 1, starting verse 3. It says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He's so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. And God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ. A plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is a plan. At the right time, he'll bring everything under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. And then our verse for today, verse 11. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. Let's pray. Lord, that's glorious, that you make everything work out according to your plan. Lord, we thank you for that incredible truth. And we ask that today it would profoundly and radically impact our lives, our thoughts, our feelings, our perspectives, our actions, and our worship, that you are in control and that we have great and wonderful promises because of what Jesus has done for us. Lord, we ask that today you give us hearts that rejoice, that our lives would be filled with joy because of who you are and what you've done for us. And that the truth of that and what you have for us would overwhelm all the difficulties of this life, all the insecurities, all the uncertainties would all pale in comparison to you and your glory and your promises for us. We pray that during the preaching of your word, that God, your presence would fill your church. And that God, your glory would be realized by us as our greatest good. And that you would please anoint me to communicate your truth for the furtherance of your purposes and the fame of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, last week, we talked about this wonderful fact that someday everything is going to be brought together under the authority of Jesus Christ, right? We talked about that last week from verse 10. That as chaotic as things feel presently, And as chaotic as things have seemed and appeared throughout history, there is actually a plan, Scripture declares. The verse said last week that at the right time, God is going to bring everything together in harmony, in symphony, under the authority and person of Jesus Christ. At the right time. Some future point. When is it, you wonder? I don't know. ASAP, I hope. But at some point, everything is going to be brought into harmony under Christ ruling and reigning. That Jesus really is going to set right every single wrong. That Jesus really is going to and is in the process of restoring all things. That there is coming a day of reversal where every wrong is set right. Where all things by the might and the authority of Jesus Christ, are renewed. There's coming a full and complete renewal. And as we saw last week from the scriptures we looked at, it's going to be glorious. Nobody's going to be disappointed. 
Nobody's going to feel ripped off. It's not going to be a letdown. There's no anti-climax. There is this great climax that history is heading toward of everything being subject to the authority of Jesus Christ. And what the verse tells us this week, verse 11, is that we have a part in that. Because we are united to Christ, it says, right? Through repentance and faith, by repenting of our sins, turning to Christ, putting all of our hope in him for salvation. We are a part of this great plan of God for the world and all of the universe. Not just a part, but our text today says that we have received an inheritance from God. We have something from God. We've got something coming from God. Something in consonance with the glorious plan of God in the person of Jesus Christ and his accomplished work on the cross and his future ruling and reigning in glory over all the nations. So we start to think, well, what might that be? Well, what is an inheritance? We know what an inheritance is. Some of us are looking forward to our inheritance. An inheritance is something given to you by someone else that generally speaking, you didn't earn. So an inheritance isn't a wage. It's not something due. It's something that is given to you by someone else. You didn't earn it. And in most cases, you didn't even deserve it, right? So it's unearned and it's undeserved, an inheritance is. It begins to sound a little bit like our salvation, right? Sounds a little bit like being saved by grace through faith. It's, it's unearned. It's not deserved. And it comes to you strictly on the basis of your connection with someone else. So your inheritance might be from your parents. You're only getting it because you're connected to them. Or, or from a great uncle or, or your aunt so-and-so that died at some time. Whatever this inheritance is, you didn't earn it. It's, it's not a wage. You don't deserve it. It's not a reward. And it's only coming to you because of your connection with somebody else. Unearned, undeserved connection with someone else. That's the idea of inheritance. Now, we have an unearned, undeserved inheritance because we are united with Christ. Because of our connection with Christ. The first thing then that we have to realize about our inheritance is that it is from God because of Jesus. From God because of Jesus. Galatians 4, 5 through 7 says, God sent Jesus to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law. So that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Prompting us to call out Abba, Father. And now you're, you're no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Undeserved unearned because of our connection to Christ and what he's done for us, we have become the children of God. And we now have an inheritance from God. It is from God and it is with Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ, Romans eight seventeen says. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. Co-heirs of God's glory. Part of the wonder of salvation is this truth. Whatever belongs to Christ in some way, because our having been united with him through repentance and faith is now ours. Whatever is Christ becomes ours. We're not speaking of his, his deity, of course, nor his place of supremacy over all created things in the nations. But as far as blessings and inheritance from the Father, we are actually co-heirs with Christ. So it's from God. It is with Christ. We share it with him. And because of our identifying with him and his identifying with us through the cross. And furthermore, and this is good news in such tumultuous times, our inheritance is safe and secure. Some of yours is not. Right? I recently had a conversation with my parents about future inheritance because they're getting on in age and we had to have that conversation. And they were like, well, we don't know if we'll have anything at that time. I said, well, can we just do it now? Because of the economy, who knows? But the good thing about this inheritance, which is from God and with Christ, is that it is, I didn't really say that. (laughs) 
is that it is safe and secure. First Peter chapter 1 says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy, undeserved, that we have been born again. Because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. That's a Christian reality. We live with great expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance. An inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. Pure and undefiled. Beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all those who see. It's safe and secure. It and our connection to it through Christ is being protected by the power of God. It's not something that's in danger. It's not something that's contingent upon your performance. It's undeserved. It's unearned. It's because of our connection with Christ. It's imperishable. It's not only from God and with Christ and safe and secure, but it is beyond imagination. Right? 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In fact, it seems to defy description. If we search Scripture for, for, for something real tangible about this future inheritance, there's not a lot that we can get at. Jesus said in John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's it. It's just this ambiguity. What about the place? It's beyond imagination. It seems to be, for the most part, beyond description. Now, when we think about inheritance in our culture and our understanding of it, it usually implies that there's a predecessor, right? That someone's got to die first in order for us to get it. But Paul here, in writing to the church in Ephesus, is taking his cue from the Roman concept, the, the Roman understanding that was predominant of the time, at the time, excuse me, of inheritance. According to Roman law, a child became his father's heir the moment he was born. The moment he was born, everything that belonged to the father then belonged to him. It wasn't a lifetime of waiting. There wasn't this necessity of a predecessor passing away. But when the child was born, everything that was a father's was his. Are, are you getting the picture? Uh, a uh, authority in Roman law from the third century, Paul the Juris, said this. When therefore the father dies, it's not so correct to say that they succeed to his property as that they acquire free control of what was already theirs. Already theirs. So that during the lifetime of the father, this relationship between father and child was one of co-ownership, was one of sharedness, was one of togetherness, was one of sharing in and rejoicing in what was had. It wasn't a thing of merely waiting and hoping and looking forward to. Now we then, as the heirs of God with Christ, those who will receive this, this indescribable, no eye has seen, no ears heard, no mind has imagined what God has for us. We begin to benefit from that inheritance the moment we are born again. Right? The moment we are born again. Testified by the fact that God's Spirit is in us. Because we repented of our sins, turned to God, put our faith in the work of Christ. We are born again by the Spirit of God. His Spirit in us causes us to cry, Abba, Father, all the benefits of the inheritance are ours. We begin to share in them. We begin to rejoice in them with Christ as co-heirs of Christ of all that the Father has for us. That's why Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11, our text for the day, is speaking in the past tense when it says we have received an inheritance in the New Living Translation. We have already received at the moment of our salvation this inheritance. And yet what's interesting interesting. In, did I say that word right? What's interesting is that this inheritance is not fully realized all at once. It's immediately ours. We immediately begin to benefit from it. But it's consonant with our salvation. Our salvation in God unfolds over time, right? We think about our salvation in three tenses. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. Can I get an amen or hallelujah or something? We are daily being saved from the power of sin. Can I get a yes, Jesus? 
And we will be saved from the presence of sin ultimately when we're in glory with him. Can I get a hooray? And so our salvation unfolds in these three tenses according to scripture. And our inheritance is very much the same. It was given to us. We have this inheritance. We are experiencing this inheritance. But there will be a future fullness of it. The likes of which we, we simply can't imagine. And so when we sort of think about, okay, what, what, what is this inheritance? It, it's just mentioned more often in the New Testament than it really is explicated or carefully explained. Okay, but we've got to understand this inheritance in part as being the benefits of our salvation. Things that are currently, immediately available to us. And that's really been the stuff that we've been looking at in these verses of Ephesians 1. The benefits of our salvation are part of our inheritance. Every spiritual blessing from verse 3, election, predestination, adoption, sanctification, redemption, freedom, forgiveness, wisdom, and understanding. All these things are immediately available to us and have immediate consequences, benefits in our lives. It's part of our inheritance. But it also includes future gifts. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 29, 28. Jesus replied, he was replying to his disciples who were complaining about all they had sacrificed to follow him. He says, I assure you that when the world is made new and the son of man sits upon his glorious throne, that's that time that we spoke about last week. When the world is made new and Jesus sits on his glorious throne, I I assure you, he says to them, you who have been my followers will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Speaking to the disciples, very cool for them. And everyone, speaking of us, who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. Part of that will include us ruling and reigning with Christ. We talked last week extensively about the fact that Christ will rule and reign. Did you know that we will rule and reign with him? Revelation 3 speaks of the future reality of this when in verse 20, Jesus says, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open up the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. And those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne. What? Think about it for a minute will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Not that we are exalted, but that we as co-heirs with Christ are with Christ. Right? There's this future fullness where beyond description, I don't even know how to think about that. We will sit with him on his throne, his place of ruling and reigning. There's a present reality of that. Right? Ways in which we enthrone Christ in our world by being salt and light, by fighting for justice, righteousness, going into the world on mission in the authority of Jesus Christ. These are all present experiences of the future fullness of ruling and reigning with him. First Corinthians gets at it when it says to us, don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? Don't you realize that we will judge angels? this future fullness of our inheritance as co-heirs with Christ, ruling with him because he rules. And we are united to him through repentance and faith. And this will include the nations. Speaking of Christ in Psalm 2, it says, The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Only ask and I will give the nations as your inheritance. The whole earth is your possession. Jesus came to save the whole world, right? Every tongue, tribe, and nation to reconcile the nations to himself. And then he speaks of us as sharing in that in Revelation 2. He says, to all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. In some strange, incredible way that is referenced over and over again throughout Scripture. When Christ is visibly ruling and reigning in the world, we will have a part in that because we're united with him. We're co-heirs with him. 
There are blessings and benefits and gifts and places and position that are included in our inheritance. And so what scripture would say is that that we ought to rejoice and praise God. We ought to rejoice and praise God. Colossians 1, 11 through 12 says this, May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. You know what? I think the church needs to hear that. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. Have you ever seen an ungrateful child? Have you ever had a friend who's an ungrateful sort of person? You give something to him generously and the words thank you or any expression of gratitude for some reason can't come out of their lips. And you're just like, dude, what is wrong with you? Do you know people like this? Yourself sometimes. Ananda says, don't be that way, sweetheart. And what, what about our kids? We always tell our kids when they're given something, what do you say? Right? And they know, thank you. Why do we have to prompt their evil little hearts to say that? <laughs> you idiot. How do you not say thank you? And in all love and humility and kindness, I would like to say to us, you idiots, why don't we say thank you more? The text says, may you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father because he's enabled you to share in the inheritance. Filled with joy. Thanking the Father. This ought to be the tone and the tenor, the vibe, the passion and the pursuit of the church. Overflowing with joy because there's something safe and secure for us because of our connection with Christ that is indescribable, that is unimaginable. So that, so that it enables us to rejoice even in the worst times of life. So that even in bankruptcy, even in brokenness, even in despair, even in divorce, even when we feel that we're sinking, even in the midst of sickness, we have this overarching, overwhelming, greater than sort of joy because of this inheritance that we have. And we have this certain hope because scripture says that we are going to experience these things. It's not pie in the sky sort of stuff. Our text says, for God chose us in advance, predestined us. God predestined us and he makes everything work according to his plan. Okay, it's not like, oh, I hope someday I experience these good things of God. No, you will because God chose you in advance, predestined you. And he is sovereign, working all things according to his plan. God decided beforehand, God is all powerful, and God is bringing it to pass. So then the failures of our lives, in the messiness of our lives, in the mishaps of our lives, we're not overwhelmed with a sense of loss because we have a true sense of sovereignty. See, that God rules and reigns. He chose us before the foundations of the world to receive an inheritance, having been adopted as his own, and he is bringing it to pass. He is working everything according to his plan. And his plan, as the text has been telling us, is for us to experience the fullness of our inheritance as co-heirs with Christ for our joy and his glory. His plan is that we would experience all these good things that he has for us, of which we've referenced some, for our joy and for his glory. He predestined us for this. This is our destiny in God. And he's sovereign over this. He's working this in our lives and in the world. In fact, fact, Philippians 2.13 would say, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power, the will and the way to do what pleases him, to accomplish his will. Remember what First Peter says about our inheritance. It is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach or the change of decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive the salvation. God is going to bring it all to pass. And this doctrine, this this understanding of predestination and God's sovereignty, that God decided in his wisdom 
before the foundations of the world. And the God is bringing it to pass in his power, no matter what we see in the world. The mystery of how these work, predestination and God's sovereignty, ought to bring us a tremendous sense of comfort. Jonathan Edwards said about it, the doctrine has appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. He's saying, I I would rather put the control of the world and my life in the hands of God than in the hands of me. Can I get a witness? I would rather God be on the throne than me be on the throne. I would rather my well-being be dependent upon God and not dependent upon me. I would rather my inheritance be of God and not of me. I would rather that my place and my position be secured by Christ and not in and of myself. So he says, it's exceedingly pleasant, bright and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. And though the world and our lives at times seem very much out of control... And though sometimes we feel as though we are constantly losing, the truth is God is in control and God is winning. That is what scripture says. Scripture then also would lead us to believe that left to ourselves, we would always work toward lesser things than this wonderful inheritance. And we would always work toward our own destruction instead of so great a salvation. Left to ourselves, we would fool around with lesser things than these wonderful things God has. And we would ultimately work our own destruction. C.S. Lewis in 1942 preached a sermon called The Weight of Glory. And about this, he said this in it. He said, we're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. All these things that we're so passionate about now, that we feel that we must have now, that we work so hard for now. Scripture would say, and C.S. Lewis would agree, we're just too easily pleased. God has so much more for us. And that God, even at this moment, is working in us for our greater good, for our joy and for his glory. He's actually working. God is alive. God's spirit is in you. Working in you for our good, our joy, and for his glory. We know and we rejoice in Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. And are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance. Predestined us. And he chose them to become like his son. I, God is working all things together for our good. Now, now we, ought, we often take that and think that, well, what that must mean is that God is working all things to work out how I want them to work out. Or God is working all things together for good. Well, I will tell you, God, what I think is good. Right? And so verse 28 of Romans 8 becomes a mantra for us. But we must remember verse 29. He predestined us to conform us to the image of his son. That what it means to work all things together for our good is that at the end of the day, at the end of the ride, we look more like Jesus. Some of you may have to adjust your concept of good and your expectation of what God is working in you, that he promises to be good. We are chosen and destined by God to experience good for God's glory, which is that sanctification process whereby we are made more like Christ. And Paul doesn't state the mode in which God does this predestines us and works. He, he affirms merely the fact that God is sovereign, God's in control, God already decided. He doesn't say that God necessarily compels us or overbears us or anything like that. Rather, he says simply that God is at work for our good and our joy and his glory and his pleasure. And we accept that by faith. God is at work for our good and our joy and his glory and his pleasure. And the more that we grasp that, 
the more that we humble ourselves under the truth of God's sovereignty and God's immediate work in our lives, the more we dive into a life with God, we find ourselves less combative with God and more submitted to God. Sinclair Ferguson would say in this case, we begin to recover from the sin sickness that gripped Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Right? That rebellion against God. Or it wasn't good enough and they wanted to be something else and rebelled against God. At last, we allow God to be God. And we discover that his sovereign purposes, even in the experiences that cause us pain, are for our good. I believe that with every fiber of my being. That his sovereign purposes, even the ones that cause us pain, are for our good. And I believe that God is bigger than our mistakes. You say, well, God is sovereign. What about my mistakes? God is bigger than your mistakes. God is greater than your failures. You say, what about my disappointments? Well, what about my heartache? What about where it's gone wrong? God is sovereign. God is in control. You say, it doesn't make sense to me. God's ways are higher than our ways. Don't lean on your own understanding. When my daughter was diagnosed with cancer at the age of five, and then when she relapsed eight months later and was given 30% chance to live, how does one understand that? How does one understand a child stricken with cancer? I've never understood that. But I do acknowledge and I have seen God's sovereignty in it. And I do believe that God is working all that for his good pleasure, for his glory, for my good, and for my joy. In order that I might be conformed to the image of Christ. Not just me, my family, Daisy, my son, my wife, others, everyone involved. The worst things in life are sometimes the best things in life when we acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Am I saying that God gave my daughter cancer? No, that's not what I'm saying, but I am saying that God is sovereign. How does that work out? I don't know. You go squabble about it. I'm simply saying that God is working all things for his glory and our good. And the things that seem to be the most painful in life can be the most fruitful in our lives. And we have to realize, though, that God's glory and our good are not mutually exclusive. They're not enemies. Sometimes uptight Christians would, would try to cast it this way, like, you're either living for God's glory or for your place. You can't, they just, if you're living for God's glory, you're miserable. And I, I just don't see it that way. You are miserable, but I don't see it that way. They're not mutually exclusive, God's glory and our good. God's purposes, rather I'll say it this way, God purposes his glory and pleasure in such a way that he simultaneously brings his people the most blessings. That's powerful. Listen, God is so sovereign that he purposes his glory and his pleasure in such a way that he simultaneously brings his people the most blessings. We're so finite, we're so either or. Well, I only see the bad, how could there be any good? Why only see what's wrong? How could this ever be right? Why only feel lost? How could there be any sense of gain? Well, you're just, you're, you're not powerful like God. <laughs> you're not sovereign like God. You're finite, broken, perverse. He's infinite, whole, and perfect, and all-powerful, and always good. God purposes his glory and pleasure in such a way that he simultaneously brings us about the most blessings. His pleasure and his glory are not enemies of our joy and good. So then, we've got to ask, well, let's, let's, go, let's go big then. What is our greatest joy and good? And here to end, we must get to the main point of our inheritance. And that which glorifies God most. Because we have a tendency to, 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 to look for the benefits and miss the benefactor. To get all caught up in the gifts and miss the giver, don't we? That's why we had to be exhorted to an attitude of joy and gratitude because we're spoiled little kids like our kids. And we have a tendency to get all caught up in the gifts and the good things that we want to lay hold of and forget about the giver and the good one who is sovereign. 
And a couple weeks ago when we were talking about enjoying Jesus, I said one of the ways that we enjoy Jesus is by enjoying the gifts that he's given us. But notice that we didn't stop there, nor can you stop there. If, if we only enjoy the gifts, if we only enjoy the inheritance, then we merely become another sort of idolater, exalting the gifts above the giver, the blessings above the blesser, the benefits above the benefactor. We have to realize that all of this inheritance, all the things that are given to us, the speakable and the unspeakable, are given to us to highlight the giver, to draw us to the giver and his goodness. John Piper, in his book, um, God is the Gospel, which we have available here, which has been one of our featured resources, which I recommend to you now. God is the Gospel says this. All the gifts of God are given for the sake of revealing more of God's glory so that the proper use of them is to rest our affections not on them, but through them on God alone. The goal of our inheritance, the goal of the blessings, the goal of the benefits of our salvation is not so that we would end in them, but they would bring us to God. That they would highlight God, that we would desire God more than them. Because if they are this good, how good is the one who gives? How good is the one who spoke them into existence? What we want to say in consonance with that book, in consonance with scripture, is that God is the gospel. God is the good news. What we gain most through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf is God himself. Right? The greatest gift of God's love is God giving us himself access to him, relationship with him through Jesus Christ. This is what 1 Peter 3.18 says. Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Not that we just might not feel guilty anymore. Not that we might just uh, deal with our brokenness. Not so that we might just have these blessings or these benefits or, or get over these sin issues or go to heaven when we die. But so that he could bring us to God. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. The whole point of it was given to us in verse 5 of Ephesians 1. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. If you don't realize that the purpose of your salvation is to bring you to God himself in loving relationship, you've missed the whole point. It's not merely about our forgiveness. It's not merely about our healing. It's not merely about our gifting. It's not merely about mission. It's always about God and our being reconciled to him in relationship. We remember what St. Augustine said to God in prayer. You made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. See, a lot of, sometimes Christians, just, they miss the main point. They, they make it about church or they make it about the gifts or they make it about this or that and the other. But our hearts are always restless, even in these good things, even in the participation of our current inheritance until really we come to the ultimate object of our inheritance, God himself. God is working in us to do everything necessary to enthrall us with what is most deeply and durably satisfying, namely himself. And I would just suggest to us that this process is often very painful because what God will, will do to enthrall us, to, to bring us to this realization of the greatest gift of the gospel being himself is he'll confront our lesser joys. He'll confront our lesser obsessions. He'll confront our idols, these things that we're overly passionate about, these things that we've subordinated God to. If there are kids... If there's a spouse, if it's a career, if it's a ministry, God will ruthlessly confront those things in love to bring us to the realization that they pale in comparison to who he is. He wants to bring us to the place where all of our joy is funneled into this one fact, that God is the ultimate gift for us to enjoy. Jonathan Edwards talked about those who never quite round that theological corner to rejoice in the giver and not just the gifts. He said this, they first rejoice and are elevated with the fact that they are made much of by God, 
right? God loves you. God loves you. God's excited about you. He gave a son for you. And then on that ground, God seems in a sort of way lovely to them. They are pleased in the highest degree in hearing how much God and Christ make of them. So that their joy is really a joy in themselves and not in God. There's a subtlety there. You see, there's a danger in this identity series issue. There's a danger in thinking about our identity and our inheritance without seeing the object and the goal of them. We must realize that the goal is God himself. We must realize and rejoice in the fact that our ultimate inheritance portion is God himself. So that we join with the voice of Israel throughout the Old Testament that would say things like this, Lord, you alone are my inheritance, my cup of blessing. Psalm 73, I desire you more than anything on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Everything else may fail, but God is my portion. Lamentations 3.24, I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. And the thoughtful Christian who's thinking about these things has has to honestly say, is all my hope in him. Do I see him as my greatest treasure, my ultimate inheritance, my portion? God is our ultimate inheritance for which we rejoice. And then, is it enough for you in the difficult times of life? Listen to Habakkuk. It says, even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there's no grapes in the vines, Even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. If everything else goes wrong, I have, because I've been united with Christ through faith and repentance, God Himself. He is my inheritance. He is mine. Christ shed his blood to bring me to him. So if everything else goes wrong, I have something, someone better. And if everything goes right, and I make billions of dollars, and I live to be 103, and I have 15 kids, and 92 grandchildren, and 15 beach houses, and all the surfboards I ever wanted, I have something or someone better. God in Christ, who is mine by the blood of Christ. You see, that, that's what's being said. And here's where I finish. I know I said I was going to finish before, but I lied, as preachers do. That's a preacher tactic. Here is where I truly finish. And the sermon clock isn't working today, so I have no idea how long it's been. And I don't care, and neither should you. So, here's my final point. The wonder of the gospel is not just that God is ours, but it's that we are his. We are his inheritance. Verse 18 of Ephesians 1. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. We've been talking about our inheritance. God has an inheritance and he says that we are his. God sees his people as his inheritance and throughout the Old Testament, he calls them his special possession. It started with Israel. Right? Israel were the elect, the chosen, his special possession. Christ comes. We're grafted in through the gospel. Now there's a church consisting of Jew and Gentile. We together are his special possession. Deuteronomy 4.20. Remember that the Lord rescued you, speaking of Israel, from the iron smelting furnace of Egypt in order to make you his very own people. His special possession, possession which you are today. Uh, my daughter, Daisy Love, has this bear, which she's had since she was born. It was one of the gifts that was given to her when she was a little baby. She's seven now. This thing is so raggedy and nasty. We wash it all the time. We put it through the spin cycle. But this thing is beat up. But it is her special possession. Have you ever seen a little girl with a special possession? Last night I was laying on the couch and I, I, I 
her um, bear was right next to me. So I grabbed it and I put it behind my head. I leaned on it and she screamed, no, and ran for me and grabbed it. Don't squish Teddy. I'm like, really? You're seven now. It's my special possession. So she's almost weird about it. Well, she is. She's weird about it. Deuteronomy 32, 9. For the people of Israel belong to the Lord. Jacob is his special possession. If I could say this about God, he's almost weird about his people. So that Psalm 33 would say, What joy for the nation whose God is the Lord, whose people he has chosen as his inheritance. So that Psalm 28, 9, the, the psalmist prays and says, Save your people, bless Israel, your special possession. Lead them like a shepherd and carry them in your arms forever. And so it says the Lord will not reject his people. He will not abandon his special possession. Unless we think it were only about Israel. It's also about the church, not that we've replaced Israel, but that we've been grafted in. So that First Peter 2 says, you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation. God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Listen to this. Once you had no identity, now you are God's people. Can we just end the identity issue series right there? Once you had no identity, now you're God's special possession. Who am I? I am God's special possession because of the blood of Jesus. So that there's a present experience of it. God working this plan, 2 Corinthians 6. God says, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. There's a present experience of that, isn't there? Right? That I'm God's and he's mine. And yet there's not enough of it. There's not enough of it. Aren't you always wanting more of God? More of the experience of with God? Now it's, it's dim. It's not fully yet realized. There's coming a future fullness, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Our inheritance is that, there's coming, is that there's coming a day where we're ultimately and fully, inexplicably beyond description, connected to God. That this thing that's just sort of, we're always trying to get at this intimacy with God, is going to be a full experience. That's why we're called the bride of Christ. Israel is called the wife of God. That's why there's going to be this marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. This is in heaven. It's loud saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Oh, he's proven to be sovereign. No one's doubting anymore. He reigns. He's almighty. And then look what it says about our future. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. You see, there's coming a day of fullness. And this this is why we want to say, with God's people throughout time, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. That's what inheritance means. God is our inheritance, and we are God's inheritance. God has given us this by predestining us and giving us a place among his people, by uniting us with Christ through faith and repentance. And this is what he is working out according to his plan. And I'll read one more passage. What? Listen to this. Listen to this. This is where our good and God's glory come together in future experience. It's an original promise to Israel. We're grafted into it. Listen to this, Jeremiah 32, God speaking. They will be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart 
and one purpose, to worship me forever for their own good. God's glory, our good coming together. I will give them one purpose, to worship me forever for their own good and for the good of all their descendants. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. This is a new covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ. I will never stop doing good for them. I will put a desire in their hearts to worship me and they will never leave me. And I will find joy in doing good for them. Wait a minute. The sovereign God of the universe says about you because of what Christ has done for you. I will never stop doing good for you. And I will take joy in doing good to you. And it may not seem like it at this moment in your life. And it may not look like it in the world. But we have an inheritance. And it's not in danger. It's reserved for us in heaven by God. It's because of our connection with Christ. And it's better than any loss you have or ever will suffer in this lifetime. So that Paul would say, I don't consider these present sufferings worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed. This hope that we have in our our inheritance with God is better than anything that you're sad about in this lifetime. It far outweighs anything that you will never attain. The object of it and his love is greater than the pain of anyone who has ever rejected you. Anyone who has ever divorced you. Anyone who has ever overlooked you. Anyone who's ever broken your heart. Our inheritance, God, his love, is better than any loss in this world. Christ, if you by your spirit would only convince us of these truths, that you're better than, so that we would in our lives pursue you more than anything else. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Lord, I think maybe I taught for a long time. I don't know. There was no clock. But we don't want to miss out on this time now. Holy Spirit, come and convince us of the ultimate joy of our inheritance who is God himself. And bring us even today into an experience of him that would forever excite us about the fullness of being with him and cause our lives to be sanctified according to those truths. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Prayer team is up here. If you need anything, we ought to get on our faces before such a good God.